if we just do a behavior cloning using this data, you know, won't cut it. Like we don't have enough data. Hello there. Today we're going to look at uh, this right here. This is an agent in Minecraft that's trying to build a waterfall. So the goal is to go up a mountain, uh, find a good spot, put down some water, turn around and then take a beautiful picture of the waterfall. That is one of the four tasks of the MineRL Basalt competition. This is what we're going to talk about today. And not only are we going to talk about the challenge, the competition, uh, as you can see, make waterfall is one of the four subtasks. We're actually going to talk to the winning team, to the Kairos team in just a second. This is just the intro. I wanna tell you a little bit about what's going on so that later in the interview with the authors, uh, you can follow if you don't know what Minecraft is or sort of the basics of these competitions. If you do, feel free to skip ahead. This is just gonna take uh, five to 10 minutes right here. So I'm gonna just show you another one to give you a little bit of the impression of what these agents can do. I'll, I haven't actually looked at many of them. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen right here, whether that's successful or not. These are the actual videos that the judges uh, saw that, uh, that uh, were part of these competitions. So the competition is human judged. There's no reward function. Uh, it's literally, you just give 10 videos to a human and they're supposed to rate how good these things are, how human-like they are, and so on. Ah, it missed the waterfall a little bit right there. Let's see whether I can turn around. Yeah, it can. Uh, not spot on, as you can imagine, uh, and not spot on in any of the 10 things, but good enough to win this competition. So how did this team go about this? If you don't know what Minecraft is, uh, Minecraft is this game that's, it looks like, you know, it's it looks like uh, it's from 1990 or so. Everything is made of blocks, but it is a really cool game. It's a completely open world game. You can do anything and everything. You can craft items. All of these blocks you can destroy and build up somewhere else. Uh, you can collect items and craft new, better items from it. For example, you can craft a pickaxe with which you can mine things, uh, mine stone. From that, you can build like an oven, a smelter and smelt iron ore from that you can build iron tools and so on this world is uh, completely procedurally generated so there is there's no the level is never the same and that's one of the things that makes these challenges so hard and the other thing is just the the sheer amount of freedom that you have right here so the agent now has spent quite a bit of time looking for a good place to build the waterfall, it looks like it got stuck right here. That must, that that's kind of one of the failure cases I imagine. Or it's gonna get out. It's gonna get out. What what a what a glitch glitch play there. It looks like here it's a good spot for waterfall. Yes, put it down, walk away from it, turn around, snap picture with the sheep in it. Beautiful. <laughs> So, this has actually led to um, a paper as well by the winning team called Combining Learning from Human Feedback and Knowledge Engineering to Solve Hierarchical Tasks in Minecraft, along with open source code that you can check out. So you can uh, retrain their agent, you can look at their code, and you can improve it. It's MIT licensed, therefore, 
you know, all good to go for you. So what did this team do that gave them the winning submission? The challenge in itself is you're given the tasks in just a short string. So there's not a reward function or anything like this. The short string literally is, for example, the find cave, it's the agent should search for a cave and terminate the episode when it is inside one. That is the entire description of the task. As I said, no reward functions. Uh, you do get 40 to 80, I believe, playthroughs, 40 to 80 human demonstrations for each task. Uh, not all of them completing the task, though, <laughs> and a bit of a code base, and that's it. This team uh, came up with the following solution. They built, at the core, they built what they call a state machine. But I want to start somewhere else. I want to start from how they used the human demonstrations. So they had human demonstrations of humans solving this task, and then they trained a navigation policy. This is trained via behavior cloning. So you try to make an agent that just kind of clones the, the human movements. Uh, they did cut out all of the uh, sort of interacting with the environment things from the human demonstrations such, such that it was just only navigation going from point A to point B. This is a policy that they can activate at any time. So as you can see right here, this gives rise to these to one of what they call uh, learned or engineered subtasks. So you, they have a stack of these subtasks. One of them is this navigation subtask that is obviously learned. They have other ones that are just hard coded. For example, when it's time to actually place the waterfall at a point, when, when you think you're at a good point to build a waterfall, this movement of stacking up the blocks and then putting the waterfall on top, that is a hard coded policy. So these subtasks are hard coded, partially and partially learned, and they're controlled by this state machine. Um, on top of that state machine, which we're going to get to in a minute, um, the state machine itself is controlled by this state classifier. So the state classifier is a thing that they came up with. They take pictures from the game, frames from the game, and they collect additional human labeled data, where for each picture, they let the humans label, for example, is this inside a cave, which you can see right here, that's inside a cave, if you play Minecraft, you, you'd know, uh, is there danger ahead, which means kind of a large body of water that you should avoid or something like this? Uh, do you have animals, which is relevant for some of the tasks. So they build up this state classifier, which is also learned, and that state classifier is now going to control this state machine. I'm not sure if they actually have it somewhere for one of the tasks in the paper. They do have it in the accompanying presentation. The state machine controls what the age or which sub policy is active at any given point. Let's see. It's not here. Well, I can maybe maybe I can I can draw it a little bit. You're going to see in the presentation. So you start. And then you, for example, if it's the make waterfall task, you go, you get to a point where you want to ask, is there a good spot to place the waterfall is a good spot in sort of the view of the agent? If no, then you go to the explore sub policy. And if yes, then you go to the go there, the go there sub policy is activated. 
These are these sub policies that uh, we saw are either learned or hard coded. For example, the explore one, you can imagine, maybe it's just sort of walking around until the state class classifier tells you that there is actually a good spot. So what makes the decision between no and yes, that is exactly this state classifier, this trained state classifier, at some point, it will tell you, ah, now you found a good spot, and then you can switch policy. So from there, uh, if after the go there, you get to another decision point, and the decision point uh, might be like, are you in front of a, of a big wall? If yes, use the jump policy. If no, uh, use the walk policy or something like this. So as you can see, the state machine itself is hard coded. So the humans came up with what do we need to do to complete the tasks, but the individual steps, they can be either learned or uh, hard coded policies. And that's how they go through fulfilling these tasks, they use the state classifier to always tell them what specific subtask here should be activated at any given point, uh, controlled by the state machine. And, you know, with that, they, they finish the task. One additional uh, thing that they sometimes need is this estimated odometry. This is where they just look at the actions they've performed so far. And they build this overhead map of the agent, as you as the agent walks through the environment, uh, they're able to sort of remember things, for example, this here is has animals. So they remember, they're going to remember locations of animals, of bodies of water, and so on. And that allows them later, if on in the later stages, if they need to go back to something, uh, they can efficiently find it again. For example, in the waterfall subtask, they have to go away from the waterfall, turn around to put the waterfall inside of their field of view, and then uh, take a picture or finish the episode. Uh, that could be controlled by this uh, overhead map that they build up. It's pretty interesting. All the while they only have access to the image of the simulator, they do not have access to like the F3 menu, or anything like this, all they have is the image, they do have some information on their inventory and their current item, but not much more than that. All right, that was it from me. If you're interested, read this paper, it's a pretty good write up. And also, it has a lot of evaluation, they did a lot of human evaluation as well, uh, computing these uh, true skill ranking scores and so on to compare their system and do various ablations. It's really interesting. Uh, but now I want to give over to the interview part of this. Uh, let me know how you like these more interviewee style of ways of presenting papers. This one is obviously a very, uh, very applied paper, <laughs> very visual paper. But yeah, let me know what you think. And now uh, enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome. Welcome. This is this is a really, really awesome opportunity right here. I'm joined by the winning team of the Mine RL Basalt Challenge uh, 2021 uh, by David Watkins, Nick Waitowich and Vinicius Goeks, who managed to somehow lock their way into winning this competition. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, this it's really awesome. I've seen the videos uh, of your agent and congratulations, first of all, on winning and uh, welcome uh, to the channel. Thanks for having us. 
Yeah, thank you very much for having us. Thank We are you. excited to talk, talk about the work. So uh, if you could describe in your words the, the challenge itself, um, the challenge is about just sort of a bunch of tasks and then humans rate uh, these tasks. How have you, what, make, what made you decide to take part in this challenge even? How did you find it? Did you just stumble across each other? How did you form your team? Like what, what was your interest in this? Um, well, I can say that, so we all work together. Uh, so that's, it, it wasn't like a, we, we kind of found each other. We've had prior experience uh, working together at the Army Research Lab. Um, and, you know, I think Benicius was actually the one that stumbled upon this challenge. And what we liked about this challenge was that it's, you know, it's, it's different from most other machine learning challenges out there, different from other AI competitions. And the fact that, you know, you don't have an objective function to optimize over, right? So it immediately makes it harder. You know, the challenge, again, like it's in Minecraft with these very free form, you know, almost lifelike tasks where really you just have a description, a human readable description of what that task is. There's no reward function, no objective function. Uh, so automatically means you can't just apply standard reinforcement learning techniques. Um, and you have to, you know, employ some sort of, you know, clever measures and potentially learning from humans, which is really what the the core of the challenge is about learning from humans. Um, and that's actually, you know, uh, each of us have machine learning backgrounds and the research that we do is, is kind of human guided uh, machine learning. So this challenge was almost like perfect for us. We're like, oh, this is, this is a great challenge. Uh, we knew it was going to be hard, um, but yeah, the, that was kind of the, the calling for us. And just so um, for, I, I will have introduced this, but the challenge was there were four tasks And every task was just given, if I understand correctly, like a very short description of what to do. So, for example, find cave is the agent should search for a cave and terminate the episode when it is inside one. Right? That is that exactly. is all. And all you have as an input, if I understand this correctly, is the screen. Right? Not nothing more. Well, you do have the screen and you do have your inventory and mm -hmm. uh, the item that you have currently equipped uh, yeah. and the screen 64 by 64 uh, RGB. That That is a, a horrible resolution. Um, oh, but yeah. you, you, do not, you do not have, because in Minecraft for people who play it, there's F3, right? Uh, you can press it, you see your coordinates, you see oh, sort of yeah. your biome and so on. Um, not, you have none of that. You have to sort of do everything from from the screen alone. And you're given 40 to 80 human demonstrations, if I know this correctly, but not all of them successful, right? Not, is that, that was yeah. a surprise for us as well when we were uh, <laughs> using those demonstrations in our Asian. And we realized like, look at this guy, he just walked around and threw the snowball to end the episode. How, how is that even useful? Like, it was a surprise for us as well. <laughs> And and sometimes you get some items. So one of the challenges, for example, is um, to uh, it's called create village animal pen, where it is uh, after spawning in a village, build an animal pen next to one of the houses in a village. Animal pens must contain two of a single kind of animal. You're only allowed to pen chickens, cows, pigs or sheep. Uh, don't harm the village. And you're in this case, you'd be given also some sort of a fence and fence gates in order to build uh, the pen. So it's not like you would have to go collect resources, but 
the task is still quite challenging. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have to collect any resource or build anything. You were given everything on your inventory, but like completing all those tasks was already a, a huge challenge. So, yeah. And especially given that you, again, to remind people, uh, the reward here is not some function you can compute. The reward is at the end, it's given to human raters. The human reads the description and then the human decides how well did your agent perform it. And most striking, I find this in, in a third task that is build waterfall, where the goal is that you have to, I, I can maybe read the, the description, after spawning in a mountainous area, the agent should build a beautiful waterfall. That, that's part of the description, a beautiful waterfall, and then reposition itself to take a scenic picture of the same waterfall. <laughs> the picture of the waterfall can be taken by orienting the camera and then throwing a snowball when facing the waterfall at a good angle. So there is even an, an essence of sort of a, a subjectivity, judgment, beauty, and so on in it. So that, that just, you know, th that is the challenging part, I think, here. What was your first, you, you saw this, you thought, I want to do this challenge, we want to do this challenge. What was your first try? Like, what did you, what was the first thing you threw at the problem? Well, I, I can speak a little bit about it. Like, at least me, myself, like when I read, like the challenge, I had no idea how to approach it. Because <laughs> I was thinking, okay, we have a few demonstrations. But like from, you know, my experience researching and everything, I thought if we just do a behavior cloning using this data, you know, won't cut it. Like we don't have enough data. And then we like, it took us like a month to to solidify like an approach. We thought about behavior cloning. We talked about uh, Gale. Uh, we thought about like, okay, let's hard code this whole thing. Uh, we definitely thought about different approaches. And then I guess in the end it was a mix of everything. And that's what you make uh, clear. So there is a paper uh, about, you wrote a paper about your approach as well. And the, the, the paper's uh, title is Combining Learning from Human Feedback and Knowledge Engineering to Solve Hierarchical Tasks. In Minecraft, sort of pointing out that the best approach uh, will be one where learned elements are mixed with uh, hand-engineered elements. Uh, what, how did you, so my, my question is sort of, how did you, come about this was this an iterative process or did you uh, you said you scrambled with a bunch of things at the beginning did you add and add and add? what was your what was your process uh, what was the first thing that maybe you realized ah this works now a little right and and then how did you build up your your end solution well so i can uh, add a little bit to that so um you know we were motivated, like the nice thing about the competitions, we were motivated to try to do well. And, and, and so we, we knew from the beginning that we didn't want, we wanted to take a different approach. Probably a lot of people would, you know, just try to apply end to end machine learning, you know, throw a lot of compute at it. Um, and, you know, we kind of realized that really, if we want a solution that is a little less just academic and more that works for this particular application, we're going to need to really use everything, right? Um, including, you know, uh, try to inject our own uh, domain bias about the problem um, into the framework, into the solution. So that really led us to these, you know, okay, well, we could have a hierarchy of uh, different modules. Some of those are hand engineered. Some of those are learned, you know, the things that we can't engineer. Um, and then uh, we can have like, you know, a state machine where we, we, we know the agent should be doing this. So, you know, let's 
let's not have the the you know RL or machine learning component learn the things uh, that we already know how to do from scratch, right? And just make the job harder, right? Let's add that information to the agent and let's you know save the learning for the things that we can't easily do, right? And then have them work together. Yeah, I I think you make this clear, and I'm I'm just gonna share a screen uh, for a bit right here. Um, you make this clear in sort of this diagram, which is an overview over your system. And uh, at the core here is this this state machine. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about why a a state machine might make sense right here? Uh, for example, this here is the state machine for for the waterfall task. I can I can talk a little bit about it. Uh, so if you saw like those tasks, so for example, let's let's talk about the build waterfall task since we have the diagram open. There's it, there's really like a hierarchy of of subtasks that needs needs to be complete in order, you know, to to you know to finish this whole task. For for example, for the make waterfall, right? You first you need to find a good spot to build build your waterfall, right? And that that means you need to climb up somewhere. You need to be like at the edge of a cliff, right? And then you have to actually build the waterfall. You know, you got to equip your water bucket and you know point it down throw the water bucket right and then hopefully this waterfall will be beautiful right assuming you got like a good spot then you have to go really far away from this waterfall and then position your camera just right to get like the best you know the best view of this waterfall and throw a snowball to finish it right so there's this whole hierarchy of tasks it needs to be completed like one step at a time and there's like this logical order so the state machine was our approach to make sure that the agent would actually follow this order, you know, without coming back and forth. Like if you do, like for example, some just an end-to-end -end machine learning approach, the agent might, you know, let's say go find a spot, and then we'll go back, take a picture, you know, come back again, try to build, uh, equip the water bucket to build the waterfall. So the state machine was our solution to to make sure the agent would follow kind of this logic for each task. Mm -hmm. And I think you profit from the fact that all of these tasks can be sort of described quite well in this state machine fashion, as I think a lot of, you know, if, if you play Minecraft as a human, that's sort of the same thing you do, right? You If you want to beat the ender dragon, you, okay, first I need to do this, then this, then this. And it's exactly. quite the same thing with a few decision nodes in between. And these decision nodes here in the in the green, those are now decided by a classifier, if I understand this correctly. So you build this this little interface here where humans uh, could rate. You were allowed in the competition to collect a little bit, like a limited amount of different human feedback. And you chose, among other things, you chose to have humans label different images from the game with such a with um with such maybe you can describe it a little bit what were you interested in and why did you choose to put the additional human labeling into this task and not any other task what like well, why so did you prefer this something important to keep in mind is that you're allowed to include 30 megabytes of additional data in this competition and the minecraft simulator is such that if you were to record a bunch of actions or steps that the player took and try to replay them 
it's not currently designed to handle RNG the same way every time. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I go break a block, that block is going to fly differently depending on the state, the internal state of the uh, random number generator. Yeah. And we have no control over that. So, so you can't seed it necessarily. We can't seeding it just doesn't work. So okay. we we couldn't just collect more demonstration data other than videos, and that would eat into thirty megabytes very quickly, as I'm sure you could imagine. So dividing up each of the tasks into a bunch of shared states made the most sense to us. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's something we've used in previous research to handle uh, navigation tasks before. And it works reliably, and, and I think there's a lot of research in making state classifiers work really well. Mm -hmm. um, so it was more just us as a team, you know, while we're watching TV, <laughs> labeling a bunch of Minecraft uh, screens. Uh, the most difficult part, of course, though, is it's 64 by 64. And there are many situations where maybe you want to recognize that there's an animal in the frame and it's a chicken and it's this small white blob, but it could be confused with a flower. And you're kind of fighting yourself to make sure that this actually works. And so there were some different strategies we were looking to employ to make sure that um, the state was classified correctly. Um, yeah. But it worked pretty well. Cool. And uh, I think people can see here maybe at this graphic, but you have such things like, for example, good waterfall view, which makes mm -hmm. sense, right? This is a subjective thing of the reward function. So it makes total sense to include that in the human, uh, in the human annotated data and not, and not code a heuristic. But you also have things like a danger ahead, uh, which you then use. So I think um, once once you know which node you're in, right, in, in, this, in this state machine, uh, very often the blue blocks right here, which are the actions, the blue blocks involve going somewhere, right? For example, if has mountain, then, you know, if, if you don't have a mountain, find a mountain. If you do have a mountain, go to the mountain. And that part means that your Minecraft agent has to go from, you know, point A to point B. And that's where you build a specialized uh, navigation um, navigation subroutine. And you said right now you've already done this in the past. Can you tell maybe a little bit in general, what does it take to make agents navigate around? So um, can I just mention one more thing about the state classifier? Mm -hmm. Sure. It's not from, all right, so with the state classifier, like David and Venetius were saying, right? It's really the core of the state machine, right? Uh, so we knew we wanted, you know, it, it's the it's the thing that makes that drives our entire solution. So it has to be, you know, more or less somewhat accurate. And we needed a lot of data, and so we actually collected around, I think, eighty-eight thousand labels, um, which sounds like a lot, but and of course, you know, that type of manual annotating, no one really wants to do. You know, as machine learning scientists, we'd rather spend that time trying to, you know, code up a solution to do that instead of doing it ourselves. But what we did, we tried to make it as easy as possible by, um, you know, we're not HCI experts, but, we, you know, we tried to come up with a, a kind of intuitive labeling interface to make it as quick as possible to kind of, um, you know, like it, one demonstration that's three minutes long at a you know a fps of 20 frames per second 
you know, that's a lot of images. And we try to take uh, advantage of the fact that the images are, you know, somewhat correlated through time, right? So the way we designed our labeling interface is kind of just to step through um, each image in the trajectory. Um, and if you're, you uh, hold down a button, let, let's say uh, one of the buttons is, you know, there's, there's nothing ahead, it's just open fields. So you can just hold down that button and it's going to traverse, you know, through the demonstration until something else comes up and then you can just move a different button. So very quickly, you know, you can, you know, label 5,000 images in one trajectory in like less than a minute because you're just holding down these buttons instead of like, you know, showing an individual image and then selecting the label and then the next image and selecting the label. I think that really allowed us to get, it, it sacrifices a little bit of accuracy. Maybe when you're transitioning, you might miss, uh, you know, get a few misclassifications, but you're able to get a lot more, more labeled images. I think this is a recurring theme sort of in um, real world tasks, the efficiency of, of data labeling uh, when you include humans. Uh, I've just recently watched sort of uh, Elon, Elon Musk's appearance on Lex Friedman. And before that, I've, I've uh, commented on Karpati's talk about the autopilot there. It's a thing that you see again and again that uh, the easier you make it for humans to annotate data, the, the more benefit you have later like it's almost it's almost uh an unfair like multiplier that you have on your system i think it's neglected currently by academia so it's pretty cool that you you thought about this as well yeah i think i think it is neglected because it is not easy and takes a lot of time and like mm -hmm. manu manual labor nobody wants to do manual labor but Definitely having like a high quality label data labeled by humans makes totally the difference. So, and now we'll let's let's go to the to the navigation uh, subroutine. How do you how do you navigate? Wait, that is here. So you have a navigation policy which essentially says the agent needs to go from A to B, and what does it take to build that? Like, it's it seems very complicated in a ter in a game so complicated as Minecraft. So, well, so okay, the the behavioral cloning part, right? So that part is you know unfortunately just very simple. It's not any secret sauce or anything complicated. Um, you know, we again just prefacing by this, you know, was a competition and we had a deadline. We had so much more that we wanted to do with this particular part, right? For to solve the navigation part, we wanted to do something, you know, way more than just standard behavioral cloning, you know, things like um, generative adversarial imitation learning, um, you know, trying to have better architectures. But in the end, we didn't have enough time. We, we, we were scrambling and, and for this uh, component we just did behavioral cloning uh, but the way that we did that is you know as you can see in this model it's like okay the the uh, agent only has the image as input and its output um, you know are more or less just the direction key so it can go forward it can turn left it can turn right it can strafe left strafe right and then it can move its camera um, and, and and really the way that we did that is we just we had all these demonstrations for each of these tasks um, we kind of, the only kind of trick that we applied was that, okay, we realized, right, this is just a navigation component. So we only want to learn to imitate the part of the demonstrations that we're navigating, right? So let's just chop off that demonstration just to that navigation part um, and then feed that into our uh, 
navigation policy. And so that's that's basically what we did was, you know, any any time where the agent was building, um, like building the pen or the village or the waterfall, we, we cut those segments out. And we The remaining segments are where the agent is just trying to go from one, uh, one point to the next. Uh, we kept those in and used that as our training data for the behavioral cloning module. And in this... In, in this model here, it says image input. Do you also give the model access to, let's say, the, uh, the results of your state classifier and maybe the current state machine uh, state or something like this so the agent knows where to go? Or do you rely on behavior cloning for the entirety of navigation? Yeah, that's a really good point. So again, it's our, this particular navigation policy is just terribly simple. It's really just the, the image input. Um, it's being driven by the state classifier in the sense that it uh, allow, you know, the state classifier decides when to start and stop the navigation policy, but we're not feeding in any uh, information directly from the state classifier or other, um, other more interesting information that, that certainly would help if we had more time, we could uh, probably do that. It would make sense to do that, but uh, right now, the state classifier just decides when to, to start that navigation policy and when to terminate the navigation. I think... Oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. ahead. No, I just, <clears throat> just went and I had a little bit on, on top of that. Like, the main reason we didn't add anything else on this is because we didn't have. So, like, the... So, this navigation subtask policy was trained from the demonstrations provided by the competition. So that data didn't have any like state machine. So the state machine was everything on our side. Uh, so we really only had access uh, to the actions that the agent took, right, uh, and the camera data. And and again, like I think the using that demonstration data provided by by the competition to train only the navigation subtask made sense because uh, let's say think about it. Let's say we want to do end-to-end -end behavior cloning, right, and then you were doing the find cave task and the find cave task. At some point, the human will throw a snowball when the agent is inside the cave, right? And that's only one data sample. And the whole episode has about two to three thousand. So you have one sample to throw in the snowball on over like, you know, three thousand samples. But to find the, the cave, it took a lot of steps. And this is all really useful for navigation. So uh, we did this, like Nick said, this uh, pre-process to remove all those actions, leave only the navigation part, and use that to train this uh, navigation subtask. And I think that uh, was pretty helpful to uh, in our approach. Mm -hmm. So is it, it, it's fair to say that, for example, you're here and um, you, your, your has mountain classifier says yes, then the state machine would simply activate the navigation does it yeah. but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily tell it where to go you just rely on the fact that your demonstration in your demonstration yeah. uh people have generally gone towards the mountain and therefore the navigation policy would have learned that implicitly exactly let me i guess let me explain this diagram a little bit so what you said is correct so the green diamonds are decision nodes right and that's that's based on the output of the the state classifier, right? So like has mountains, you know, if it's over let's say 90% confidence, we'll take that as a yes, right? And then we go to those uh, blue uh, rectangles, and each blue rectangle is a subtask, 
and those subtasks can be either learned or coded or like hard coded. So for example, go to go or find go. Uh, actually, find go was uh, learned from the human demonstration. So uh, we would not say like something like, oh, go to this coordinate, like we didn't have, right? Mm -hmm. We would just use the, the human, uh, the policy that was trained from human demonstrations to navigate, let's say, going up the mountain, right? And then let's say on that uh, part of the diagram where you have the dash line, you know, there's a green uh, diamond there written at the top. So let's say if the state classifier detect that we're on top of the, the mountain, right? Then we would switch to displace waterfall subtask. And displace waterfall subtask was hard coded. So that was not learned from the human demonstrations. Mm -hmm. And what the subtask does is basically point your camera down, keep the water bucket and throw it. You know, that's kind of placing the waterfall. Mm -hmm. So those blues are, are a mix of learned subtasks and hard coded. Yeah. What uh, my question is a little bit you have, for example, this danger ahead state, right? Uh, but you don't feed any state to the navigation policy. Where is the danger ahead used? Is yeah. it inside the state classifier somewhere? Like you say, if there's danger ahead, then we don't even want to activate navigation. Exactly. So that's something that it ta it's like a safe critical subtask that mm -hmm. takes priority over everything. So it doesn't matter if you're looking at the mounting, whatever you need to do. If there's danger ahead, just avoid it. Right, so it's like a sort sort of a safe override that's always on, no matter which subtask you're doing, if you're following the human or not, because you know just avoid danger, because our first iterations of Asian and even the the final one still does sometimes. When you fall on one of those lakes, you just you just can't escape. It's just too hard. Like mm -hmm. sometimes they're like two blocks uh, tall. Then it's hard to like teach the agent to break the blocks and jump, like do all those things that us humans do pretty well. For the agent, it's pretty hard. So our agent got stuck a bunch of times. Then we had to to add like some uh, safety subtasks to help a little bit uh, the agent to escape those things. Mm -hmm. And at at some point, you also you also the uh, built in this this odometry estimation. Um, because you only had the image and you thought it would be, maybe you can explain this, what led you, because it's not a straightforward thing to include, right? If I think about how would I solve this task, uh, what is the odometry estimation? What is it for and why did you include it? I, I can talk about it. Uh, so like, like you mentioned at the beginning of, of the video, uh, we could not, like in Minecraft, we do know where the agent is, like when you're playing the game, right? You can press like F3, you can see everything, right? But in the competition, we were not allowed to use that, right? So uh, we had some ideas, okay, let's use the simulator, but we were not allowed to do that. But we're thinking like, what do we know about this problem, right? So we do have access to the actions that the agent took, right? And we do have access to the image. Not only that, we know a little bit of Minecraft. so. We know that the simulator runs at 20 frames per second. So each frame is 1 over 20, 0 0.05 seconds. So we know this 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 time interval between each frame, right? Uh, and from Minecraft, we know that, for example, uh, the walking distance is actually, I think, 4.32 meters per second. 
So we had this information from the wiki. <laughs> so let's say if the, the agent send the, the command to move forward, right, and not considering inertia or anything, right, we could assume that in one frame the agent walked 4.32 times 0 0.05, right, so like this velocity times this dt, this time interval, so we know uh, how much the agent uh, walked in the x direction, right, and then uh, we had the actions, we had actions, access to the actions uh, for the camera control, so we could kind of estimate the heading. So just based on the actions that the agent took uh, and knowledge of the, the simulator, right, we were able to sort of estimate velocity x, y, and heading. And then you integrate that over time because you know your time interval. So you can come up with estimates of x, y, and heading for the agent. And that's what you see on this uh, kind of this black uh, diagram on the right, which which I can explain everything in more details too. Um, you so, but I mean, you you built this sort of map almost like this is an overhead map of the agent in its environment, annotated with first of all what you've done so far, right? Your your position that's uh, that's been going on. Maybe if if this here loads this here. Uh, is different trajectories, but you also annotate this map with various things that you find, like whenever your state classifier says something. Um, where is this information used? Uh, I guess it's, you said it's not in the navigation because that it doesn't get any additional features. Where is the information that you estimate from, from this, this overhead map? Where is it used? The, the best example for this is the make waterfall task. The, so when the agent places a waterfall, um, you know, something we were thinking is maybe we'll try the behavioral cloning, but often, you know, the, the behavioral cloning doesn't really stay still very often because mm -hmm. it really learned, uh, I'm, well, the navigation sub policy. So instead, we, we sort of use that heading estimation to move the agent away a fixed amount and then rotate around to look at it. So there are just certain tasks that it's really important that whatever the final view is, it's aligned with some landmark in the environment that we don't have a uh, ground truth information for. Yeah, so it's really the, the odometry is mainly used in uh, various places in the state classifier. I mean, start the state, the state machine in, in some of the subtasks like Dave was saying. Another example is the animal pen, right? Because that, the challenging part of that task is you really have to build, you first got to find an open location, then build the pen. And then you have to leave that pen and go find animals somewhere, right? They could be anywhere. And then lure them back to the pen. So you have to remember where you built, built that pen. Um, and so that, that's, you know, the odometry comes into play for that place. So we, we're using the state classifier to kind of classify, okay, here's an open location. Now we switch to pin building mode. Okay, the pin is built, let's go find some animals. Um, we remember the location of that pin, uh, you know, based on our estimated odometry. And then once we find some animals, then we uh, try to go back to that, that location. And uh, just to say that the try to go back will be a hard coded policy that takes as an input the remembered location of the pen and your guess of where you are in relation to that pen. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah at that stage you have a XY coordinate of the pen and you have an XY and heading uh, estimates of your position, right? 
so you can basically compute the angle between like where you're looking and where the pen is you can compute this angle right and the policy was literally kind of close this angle and then keep moving to kind of reduce this distance over time and go back to that location so the simple policy there there are a few limitations though on the odometry side which i just want to comment just to don't say this was like a god tier approach for that so for example since we only use uh, the actions right if you think about it the odometry is just seeing the actions right and then okay the agent is moving forward, so we're seeing this moving forward action, right? So we're integrating that over time, increasing the distance and everything, right? But what if the agent gets stuck, like behind the rock, behind the tree, and it is still moving forward? Like in Minecraft, you can still kind of walk forward, sort of sliding, right? But you're still stuck in place. But the odometry does not know that. Like we had some some ideas to integrate, like. Uh, different in the pixels right using this camera data to know when when the agent is stuck so we ignore that but we didn't have time to do that at the end mm. but this approach uh, our current approach still works for a short short distance right so of course the long you walk you know like the the drift will be just higher on this estimation but for short distances actually actually works pretty well mm -hmm. and, and i, I guess it sorry uh, I, w I was going to say that a slam approach in a 64 by 64 image that's only RGB is incredibly challenging and probably not the right approach for this particular challenge. And it's it might also be be fair to say that you said you you had a lot of ideas. I guess uh, if you were to go further, you'd probably let's say prov try to come up with a navigation policy that's both learned but also controllable in some way try to come up with an odometry estimation that takes into account the picture which could recognize when you're stuck and so on uh, i think there's there's a lot of stuff to improve but I'm, I'm very impressed by sort of your 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 pragmatism of okay this works well enough let's go on uh was there was there moments when i guess there's moments in every project when when you're or what was the moment when you most thought, ah, this is not going to work, let's give up? Like, did you have a moment like this, and, and what did you do? You guys want to comment on that? Well, there's, there were, I guess, a lot of those moments. We, uh, if you go back to the main overall diagram, we definitely, like, had, you know, went back and forth on, 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 you know, what should the solution be, you know, we were still toying around at some points with, with, you know, a more, you know, end to end approach in some places and whether we should put our eggs in that basket or, or whether we should do this, uh, current approach. And ultimately, you know, this is the, the one that we landed on and, and we, we designed this, the nice thing about this approach is it's, it's hierarchical, but it's very modular, right? And the idea is that each of these subtasks you know, they're individual mod uh, modules that we can improve upon or replace. And uh, and so like, you know, if we had more time, the, the some of the things that we would do is start to try to replace some of these hand-engineered subtasks with more learning-based subtasks and, and, or, you know, replace the navigation module with uh, a more advanced learning module that uses more information. Uh, one of the things we spent a lot of time on that never made into, or at least uh, was, was kind of, using uh, generative adversarial imitation learning as our core algorithm for learning the navigation module. 
Um, and, you know, with Gale, it's, it's basically using a GAN. And as we found out, like everybody knows, GANs are notoriously difficult to stabilize, including GANs for Minecraft. And uh, it didn't, ultimately didn't end up making it, so we had to, to revert back. So that, that was one of our scenarios where we're like, oh, we're, this is this is definitely not going to work. You know, we spent a ton of time doing that, and we had to kind of, you know, uh, replace with our with our backup, which is just you know standard behavior cloning. Oh, you, I think, uh, so go ahead. Also, um, the at one point, we, my brothers are very good at Minecraft, and you know, the Minecraft speedrunning community is a is a pretty big thing. So at one point, we were considering. Why don't we just get somebody to play Minecraft really well? <laughs> but that stupid Minecraft simulator limitation, and also, you know, it's it's one thing to get a bunch of people to play the game better than maybe the demonstrators were playing, but that also means that, you know, that data won't necessarily be very rich because they can't play the game well and label the data at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes back to this problem of labeling data really conveniently is difficult especially when you're driving the agent simultaneously so it, it it becomes a very difficult challenge to use human data uh when the the amount of data you can actually collect is small and this being minecraft i think I, I like i'm fascinated by this because i wonder how much world knowledge is in inside a human when they play minecraft and how much is sort of learned because the world is different like literally different every time and uh i can learn minecraft by just watching someone do it a few times right i can perfectly not perfectly but i can well generalize to other worlds is that because i've watched someone i've done it a bunch of times or is that because i know from my life what sand is and what water is and how it behaves and uh i think that i don't it... I, yeah i don't know but yeah i think uh I guess the main advantage of like you know humans is that you know we've lived you know 20 30 17 years already right in the real world and then Minecraft try, tries to mimic that so we humans have a huge kind of baggage that we can use but we have to always remember like those Asians they start from scratch they literally start from nothing right mm -hmm. we had to collect data to teach what danger was for those Asians like like had to teach oh don't jump in the water you know don't don't drown there you know things like that uh so that's is very challenging as well and i have i have your um so so uh four videos that you uploaded um and they have side by side the agent view the classifier but also the odometry estimation um do you want to maybe so this is for example do you have one that is your favorite of these four? Uh, probably the waterfall, I think, will look pretty nice. Mm. So this so is... Build, build house was pretty challenging. <laughs> this is uh, 30 seconds. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow it down to like a 0.25 right here. Um, do you maybe... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I can, oh, yeah, I can like comment. Do you maybe want, like, want to comment a little yeah, bit on what's right. happening right yeah. here? So which state is it in? What's happening? Yeah, so so this is a video of the agent uh, solving the, the make waterfall task, right? And then you mainly see in the, screen, in the screen two panels. So on the left side, that's the RGB 
So this is the, like a camera view of the agent, right? And on the right side, this black panel is the estimated odometry. So if we start there on top left, you see like action and then a huge tensor, right? So that's the, I think 12 or 13 actions that the agent was performing. So they're mostly binaries. So like move forward or not, move back or not, you know, things like that. Uh, and below that, you see the raw output of the state classifier. So we had uh, uh, 12 classes, or I guess 13 with, you know, the known class. And you see like the confidence of the classifier, uh, you know, for, for classifying this state, like this camera, this camera image. So you see like right now, you know, facing wall is pretty much almost 100%. I think it is from all the stone that the agent is seeing. So mm -hmm. it thinks it is a wall, right? Uh, and on the right side, the odometry. So we can start there on the on the top part there. Uh, you see a X, a Y, and a heading. So X, Y. So that's the estimated position of the agent. So that's not the ground truth. So we, again, we didn't mm -hmm. have the ground truth. Same with the heading. So that's estimated. And that camera angle there is like a vertical angle, right? And then uh, on the right side, you have like some time. So we kind of just have a tra keep track of time. And then you have a legend. So the legend there is for all the, the colors you see in the odometry. So the red one, the red dot is the Asian. So right now it is down at the bottom of the screen. Uh, whenever uh, the way the Asian uh, walks around, it leaves like this trace. So that's the white dashed line that you see uh, in the screen. And then like right now you see, for example, it just uh, saw that cyan, I think, uh, blob at the bottom there. That's when the state classifier detect that we are on the top of the waterfall. So you see that the, that's the last thing on the legend there. Uh, mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, the agent walks around and some of the relevant states that we classify, we sort of drop a pin in the map, kind of just to keep track of it. So in, in the video, the first like 25 seconds or so, what, you know, this is the, you know, it starts off basically with the navigation policy, right? Yeah. The, the go to goal. So the behavioral cloning module that we trained is, is in control and it's driving and it's, and it's basically, you know, trying to mimic all of the other human demonstrators that did this task, you know, which is more or less kind of walk around and, and, and look for a good spot. And then when the state classifier detects like, okay, this is a decent spot, that's when you saw it switch to the, all right, let's build the waterfall. And then after build the waterfall, the state classifier switched to the, now go take a picture subtask. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that, that's basically what you see in this video. And one thing I'll, I'll say with this, the interesting thing uh, with the navigation policy is, you know, this is something we, we kind of noticed and it's just a theory, we don't have any proof on it, but like, the, you know, the agent jumps around a lot, um, but we think that's because um, the, the agent is mimicking uh, the human demonstrator. So, like, so jumping for the sake of jumping, not necessarily to jump over stuff. Like, you know, yeah. there's there's some players. You're faster if you jump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's seen in the demonstrations. Or, or some players like like me, I just jump idly, you know, just a fixation. So I'm just like randomly jumping, not not to particularly jump over anything. And you kind of see that in the agent's behavior. So it's almost, uh, you know, makes it more human-like, uh, at least in, in our opinion, versus, you know, a hard-coded navigation policy, which mainly, you know, you might 
expect it to just walk without jumping unless it needs to jump right over something. Here, you know, the agent is kind of just more pseudo-randomly jumping like a human would. And, and we thought that was pretty cool because, you know, another part of this competition that we haven't talked about yet is not just, you know, developing agents that can do the task the best, but also there was a sub-thread uh, to the competition of who can build the most human-like agent, uh, which we also uh, won that, that um, prize. Uh, so, you know, this would potentially, I mean, uh, really our whole system, you know, uh, is sort of aims at the human light because we added a lot of human knowledge to it, but like the behavioral cloning part, you know, that might also add to that because it kind of moves around uh, more or less like a, like a human would move around mm -hmm. and it, it looks a little less robotic, like if it were kind of a more yeah. hand engineered. Except like here, when, when it's like a good spot for a waterfall, you immediately point down and start like, I guess this is the hard-coded part like yeah. you see right now. Mm -hmm. Immediately point down, build a bunch of blocks, place the, the bucket. And then it's, it's interesting. So this part here is hard-coded as well. It's just like move the agent away. And we see the agent kind of slide on the left a little bit because I've noticed that later when it turns around, it sort of almost misses a little bit the angle yeah. Um, right, so this is this could be this drift that you have in the odometry estimation. So it's trying to make a picture of the waterfall directly, it misses like a little bit. So I guess that would be that would sort of be the problems that you get in just having the um, just having the estimation from the action which you mentioned. Yeah. So for example, when you throw the the water down, right? Sometimes the agent will float in the water, and that will turn mm -hmm. the agent a little bit left and right. But the odometry doesn't see that because the agent didn't command the camera movement, so it doesn't mm -hmm. update your heading. So that can also, you know, cause problems later. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like like you, you said, know. that part was hard coded. Like the the place yeah. waterfall subtask was hard coded, but all the way up to that thing, up to that part was learned from human demonstrations, which is the navigation subtask. What I think what you what you need to do is you just need to train the navigation thing on you know dream. <laughs> you, you, so you 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 just wanna you just wanna train it on like a bunch of videos of dream and then just see what happens. I would be it would be so curious to see what happens. <laughs> well, that's we um, wanted to do that initially is we thought oh look yeah. at all of this awesome data on YouTube that we could yeah. maybe try to learn from, but there's no actions associated with it. Yes, okay, true. You sort of have to estimate the actions almost a little bit and you'd also have to like there's a lot of things you'd have to guess at what's yep. actually going on which where do we crop the video right like there's mm. all this stuff they have overlaid and it, it becomes more challenging to yep. use uh youtube data but i see okay um you you um wait what was i what was i gonna one thing that, yeah, one thing that I was a little bit, like a tiny bit dissatisfied with, with this competition. Obviously, it's already super duper challenging, right? And Minecraft is so much more complicated than this thing. But uh, there were these four tasks and you knew them ahead of time, right? Uh, that's why you were able to sort of build the state machine. Um, the descriptions were very clear ahead of time. Let's say that I come and I'm the organizer and I change the challenge for next year. And next year, it's still the same thing. It's human rated. 
uh, it's described in just like a simple string, but I won't tell you what the string is, right? I won't tell you ahead ahead of time. How would you how would you go about uh, designing a system like this? Like, what would you would you do? Would you try to go the same route, or let's say you also had very uh, limited resources like you had now you can't train like a giant rl system well i think we would definitely be forced to go a different route which i think would be good you know one of the things i like about this competition again is that it's you know i think it's important for the field because you know it's these tasks again that you can't just you know do this black box optimization over because there's no objective function so you're forced to really try to learn from a human right or or, or do do something right um, and, 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 you know, we really took that to heart and we knew like, okay, in order to do well in this competition, we cannot just use the human provided demonstrations, like m- the majority of the, the other teams, we had to add our own, uh, additional human, uh, input and feedback. And, and, and we did that with the design of our state machine and in the, the labeling, the human exhaustive human labeling that we added, but you know, to take it a step further, really, I think the interesting thing would be to have a system where you have, you learn from real time human feedback, which our system didn't do. Uh, because, you know, well, one, it's that's more challenging and we didn't have time. And because all the, uh, the tasks are known ahead of time, you don't have to have real time human feedback. You can, you know, collect your human feedback or your human labeling beforehand and then use it. But if you have now a, a new iteration of this competition where you do not know the, the tasks ahead of time, then you now might need a system where your agent needs to learn from re- human feedback in real time and kind of interact uh, with the human to kind of get that learning uh, because you know, you're just seeing what you need to do the task um, at competition time. So I, I think that would be really interesting and, and that would force more uh, solutions to, to use something that, that uses real-time human feedback. What set you apart? If you you probably seen sort of the other teams that competed and so on, and I'm I'm sure they were also they were also engaged and motivated and tried a bunch of things. What do you think was sort of the or maybe the the most defining factor that let you win? Was it? I'm sure there was a, a level of stochasticity in the evaluation, but you know you won. I think not one, but two of the three subcategories even. Um, so it must mean that you had a, a considerable, let's say, edge over most of the competition. What, in your estimation, was that? I I have a guess. You guys can comment on that. Uh, I think, in my, my opinion, I think our edge was actually using human uh, feedback data. So like the other teams, if I remember correctly, I think number two used... Uh, sort of uh, improved algorithm that would improve on, on Gale. So that was kind of so, sort of full RL approach. The third team tried to use some of kind of learning from human preference, if you remember that paper, but they didn't use a human to rate the trajectories. They used like a heuristic, right? And we were the only team that actually used human data. So uh, we, you know, we label a bunch of data, you know, we added kind of our knowledge, our bias on the task and everything. So I think really using the human, I think was the, the key factor uh, that allowed us to win two of three of, of the awards. 
100%. Like, you know, yeah, we had a state machine uh, uh, approach with, you know, these uh, modular hierarchical design, but really we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have, you know, this classifier that was generated with additional, you know, human feedback and human labeling. Um, and so it's really the thing that stood us out apart. And like V said, it was, um, you know, the other teams, they, they just use the human demonstrations and, and even, um, the, I think the third place, uh, so, uh, team, they used a simulated human, right? Uh, instead of, you know, doing the hard work of actually getting that human feedback, they just defined as a uh, simple heuristic. And I think that right there is like, you know, the important thing, like the field, you know, sometimes can just like, oh, well, let's just, it's easier to kind of simulate out the human. Let's, you know, come up with a better algorithm. But it really just shows like we, we should do a better job trying to incorporate uh, human feedback because um, it's definitely, you know, valuable information and, and can really improve the, the way we develop our AI algorithms. I think it's important as well to, you know, when you look at, at Minecraft, it's it's very much feels like an open world sandbox problem, very similar to using a robot in the real world. Um, and collecting real world data is about as difficult as I would say, and well, it's a little more challenging in some ways, but challenging to collect lots of good, rich human demonstrations in this particular environment. And so if we were looking at this as a, a generalized approach to solving this kind of navigation problem, I think we would have used a similar approach for handling this on a robot where, you know, a robot going to go pick something up somewhere can be broken down into a bunch of discrete steps and we solve each of those steps really well. Whereas an end to end approach, we risk having situations where the, the neural network is doing something that we can't debug at all. And I think that hierarchical approach really let us debug each step really well, as opposed to, um, the monolithic approach. Now, just to say, in on the on the leaderboard website, there is a team that has like a better score than you. Was that is that an artifact of the one leaderboard, or is it a late entry after the competition? So, so that's the that's the public leaderboard, right? And it's an unofficial yeah. leaderboard. This is yeah. this is, highlights the other difficulty of this competition. Is like again, there's nothing to just automatically grade everything. Mm -hmm. the, you have to just get volunteers to literally just sit down and look at uh, pairs of videos of different agents and see which one is better. Very, very uh, arduous task, right? And the public leaderboard is just any random person with a web browser can go on and, and start rating mm -hmm. all, all the people. You know, we, we provided some ratings. It's completely unofficial, but it was just used to um, kind of determine who would go to the next round, so the, the top 10 teams. And then the competition organizers actually hired uh, professional contractors, you know, um, mm. you know, but actually had, you know, not just random people, but like contractors go and do official evaluations to determine the winners. And on that one, uh, that's that's where we won first place. But on the, the public leaderboard, we're, we're not shown as first place because, you I know, see. the stochasticity of all the human raiders, right? I love that the, the, the professional contractors were probably like they had to know Minecraft, right? So they're they're like the, the most competent people in it were probably like some thirteen year olds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. A bunch of kids to watch some videos, give some ratings. 
<laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, is there is there anything you you you'd like to? That was my exhaustive list of of questions that I had about this. Is there anything you feel is important to to add for people to know if they want to do something like this themselves or? Uh, I think I think uh, during the presentation we had the slide about that. So uh, so this competition might happen again next year or I guess this year already, twenty twenty two. Uh, so if you're really interested on that, uh, make sure to go ahead and start playing with the minor IO package now, because it took us a long time to to figure that out. I think I think I can speak for all all three here. I think that was our first time working with the Minecraft package, like the reinforcement learning package. So it took us some time to to learn all the, you know, how to work with that their action space, observation space, and everything. So if you want to like an extra edge uh, this next year, you can maybe start playing with the package now. Uh, and I think I think that's it. Uh, maybe play a lot of Minecraft. I think that that helped. Uh, yeah. We, what do you think, guys? I mean, you mentioned uh, like the the paper that we have, but we also have made our code available for anybody that wants to try it themselves or improve upon our solution. Yeah, awesome. I think, I think the paper got the link to the code. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it, it's there. So yeah, go ahead, play with our code. Maybe make it better. Let us know. Maybe make some pull requests. Cool. Awesome. Well, in this case, um, thank you so much for being here and, and sharing this. It's really, I love, I like it. I think it's really cool when, when things like this get, get out into the, well, not real world, but Minecraft world, which is close enough. Um, it's, it's an incredibly hard task. And for just from the videos I saw it, I was surprised by, you know, just how far you can get with how little sort of resources and data. I guess just one last thing, like the, Definitely, you know, for, after this first year's competition, the, uh, you know, this is far from solved. And I think the competition organizers realize that too. So out of the four tasks, which are, you know, that you already mentioned, uh, you know, basically advancing in difficulty, the, the find cave and the make waterfall the easiest, those are pretty much solved. The create animal pen and especially the build village, none of those uh, solutions came even close to really solving that you know i'm sure the the human raiders are just looking at two really junk agents doing random stuff and trying to pick which <laughs> one's better right uh but you know it's still like on that build village task which is still a very simple task out of the range of tasks that you can conceive in uh minecraft is still far from from solved and i mean yeah there's there's no crafting yet there is no fighting there is no exploring and this isn't even like this this is where minecraft starts the actual game of minecraft is where you sort of set your own goals right and and you you try to achieve something new uh, yeah it's it's cool to see that there's still a lot of a lot of stuff to do awesome thank you so much for being here and um yeah i'll i hope to see you next year again Well, thank you very much for having us, Yannick. Uh, like I said, I, I watch a bunch of your videos. I really like your channel. I'm excited to see Hey there, it's Yannick. I'm going to leave you with the submissions of the team to the competition that were actually judged by the human annotators. So you can see what the humans saw and what it takes 
to win such a competition. We'll show you all the submissions for each of the tasks in parallel. Let me know if you liked this video, leave a like if you did, and leave a comment if you have comments, suggestions, anything at all. See you next time.